Friends, it's so good to be in the house of the Lord together with you. I don't think the Apostle Paul and the other uh, writers of the Bible would have envisioned a time when we would be able to say that we are together, uh, even though we are physically not together. But I know and, and I sensed in my spirit, even as I was worshipping just now together with you, that we were one body, one voice. Let us come to the Lord in prayer and let's pray. Lord, we recognize the importance of learning from you and your teaching. And so, Lord, would you convict our hearts with your truth? I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing to you, Lord. Lord. Will we glorify you in this time? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, have you ever had an old t-shirt that was so comfortable that you wanted to wear it all the time, even though it was thin and worn out and faded and out of shape, maybe even full of holes and with a couple of stains here and there? Uh, I'm pretty sure every wife has a story to tell about a horrible shirt their husband refuses to throw away because it's so comfortable. And I see a lot of husbands and wives nodding here. I'm pretty sure those of you online can also share the same experience. I may also be speaking from experience. And, and sometimes the, the shirt is in such a bad shape that you're forced to throw it away and buy a new one. Or, you know, maybe you've been persuaded somehow to buy a new shirt. Maybe it ended up in the rubbish bin somewhere one day. So you go to... Uh, Shopping mall, or you go on Shopee, okay, you find the right size and you buy it and you wear it, but even though it fits you, the new clothes feel unnatural, even uncomfortable. And you wish that you had your old shirt back, you know, even though now it's in the trash or it's been repurposed into a rag to wipe things or that sort of thing, you wish that you could have your old shirt back. But the new shirt is better. It looks new. It's not out of shape. It's not full of holes or stains or with dangling threads. And so you stick with the new shirt because you know that it's better than the old one, even though it doesn't feel as comfortable. And eventually, we get used to the new shirt. We wear it often. It doesn't feel so weird the more we wear it, and it becomes more comfortable after a few washes. Until it becomes so comfortable that you wear it all the time and you spill things on it and it gets worn out and then it's an old shirt that you need to get rid of again. Now today we're looking at something similar. The old self that we're so used to and the new self that sometimes isn't as comfortable but is definitely better than the old self. Now the parallel and the illustrations, of course, we don't eventually wear out the new self, the new self and throw it away. But it's illustrating this point. And so our big idea today is that we must, we must live like the new people that we have become. Okay? We must live like the new people that we have become. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, we looked at how we were made alive in Christ through God's grace and how we were saved for a new life that includes good works. Now, Brother Kaming and Brother Giam Liang later brought us through how uh, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were also given as much access to God through Christ. 
as the Jews had, you know, as a result of that grace. And last week, Brother Chong Jin showed us how the, the church are united and how they belong to Jesus under a shared identity and serve Him together. Today, we are looking at a further outworking of the element of identity as well as how Christians are to live in relation to others. In today's passage, Paul mentions a series of exchanges that should be made according to what the Ephesians have been taught in Christ. And firstly, there should be an exchange of identity. The old identity should leave. Now, throughout the previous chapters, Paul had been talking a lot about the Gentiles and how they can be united to God's people through Christ. And this letter to the Ephesians is written mainly to Gentile believers. Okay, so it's written primarily to Gentiles. And so when, when in verse 17, Paul tells them, you know, don't live as the Gentiles do, it's not a race thing, okay? Because he's writing mainly to Gentile believers and he's not asking them to change their race. They don't know about Michael Jackson yet. They don't know that changing a race is possible. No, this is about how Gentiles used to be considered outsiders when it came to having access to God. And so, Paul is referring to other Gentiles who have yet to believe in Jesus. And he's also referring uh, to the, the, who the Gentile believers used to be. And so, in this passage, when Paul talks about the Gentiles, he's not talking about non-Jews as, as an ethnic group but he's referring to unbelieving Gentiles. And Paul elaborates on the state of unbelieving Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 19. He says uh, that the unbelieving Gentiles are darkened in their understanding and their ignorance is due to the, the hardening of their hearts. Now, all these Greek words of darkened, uh, ignorance, hardening, all these words point towards darkness that is caused by blindness. And we'll elaborate more on this in the themes of light and dark next week. Now, these gentle unbelievers are also separated from the life of God. And this literally, uh, this separated from the life of God literally means to be alienated from the life of God or to be a non-participant of the life of God. Now, this is the natural state of all humans caused by our sin and the first essential truth of the gospel that creates the need for our salvation in the first place, this fact that we are all separated from God and we are alienated from the life of God. And so this separation from God removes the, the, the Gentile believers' awareness of what is wrong and what is right in God's eyes. You know, it's a bit like how you know somebody well. You, you might know somebody very, very well. You might know how they think. But if you grow apart from that person or you have been separated from them, you've lost touch with them, that separation, that relationship, after a while, you have no idea what they're thinking. You don't know what they like. You don't know what they want. You don't know what they think about you. And so, mankind doesn't have insight into the truth of God's will and what he thinks and what he likes and what he wants because of this separation that has been caused by sin. 
And so it creates this loss of sensitivity to the life path that God intends for all humans to walk. And so for these Gentile unbelievers, as a result of this loss of sensitivity to what God wants, instead they gave themselves over to sensuality and they are greedy for even more. And, and so, uh, they, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 says, They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And this, uh, oh, sorry, I, I went back. Yeah, sorry. So, for those who have uh, been separated from the life of God, they've been desensitized, They've lost sensitivity to what God wants. They give themselves over to sensuality and uh, they just want more of what pleases the senses. This is similar to the philosophy called hedonism, where we live purely for the sake of pleasure. We live purely to, for, for the sake of whatever makes life more enjoyable. In fact, many atheists today still come to this same conclusion that if there's no God to define morality and mankind is merely the, the product of evolution from random chances that somehow create and sustain life, then there is no deeper meaning, there's no greater purpose to life than just living as comfortably and as pleasurably as possible. Morality, what, what is right and wrong and good or bad, is nothing more than a social arrangement so that people can live in harmony together. And so this is why people, uh, this is why Paul says in verse 17 that these unbelieving Gentiles are futile in their thinking. It is vanity. Without a good and holy God, the life that we live is futile. It is pointless and it ends up in something like hedonism, which is ultimately futile. Now let's just take a moment to turn to somebody next to you and discuss or reflect if you're on your own. What is one important thing that people miss out on when they are alienated or non-participants of the life of God? Okay, and for the kids, what is one thing that is important to you about being God's child? All right, we have two minutes for this.
Let's move on to the next point about exchanging the old for the new. Don't you miss these technical issues? <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, yeah, so, so the, first, the first thing that we're exchanging is our identity in terms of uh, being out with the old. And now it's about in with the new. As I mentioned earlier, Paul is not just talking about unbelievers in general. He's also talking about the past lives of the Gentile Christians at Ephesus. You know, the, how they used to be like the rest of the Gentiles. And so that's why he says, you must no longer live as they do. Now, instead of that kind of life, Paul tells them in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 to 24, uh, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so the old self of these Gentile Christians is like what Paul was describing in verses 17 to 19. He's saying, exchange your old self, you know, your old way of life, when you lived just like the rest of the Gentile unbelievers, exchange that life with your new self, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so what Paul is talking about here is more than just new behavior, which we will come to, but even more than that, we have new identities when we exchange the old person for a new person. And what's interesting is that Paul emphasizes what this new self is like. It's not like a New Year's resolution. It's not like a self-improvement goal. This new self is our true identity as human beings. If you remember at the start of this year, I preached a sermon on how our Methodist social principles teaches us about human rights and responsibilities, if you can recall. And one of the things that we looked at was about how God created mankind in His own image. And one aspect of His image that we are created in are His holiness and His righteousness. And so according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, Paul is telling us that our new selves are actually our original selves as God designed and created us to be before sin came along and messed us up. And so we were created to reflect the true righteousness and the true holiness of God. In His image, we reflect His image, and that is our true identity in Jesus Christ. So how do we put on this new self? Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23 tells us to be made new in the attitude of our minds. And this is very similar, uh, if you've caught it already, it's very similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, this being made new in your mind. 
You see, change starts with the mind. If you've been involved in some sort of work that helps other people in need, you know, whether it's missions work or helping the homeless or even counselling somebody, you'll find that a lot of times the challenge in truly helping to bring about positive and lasting change is not just meeting their immediate need. It is changing a certain mindset. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 23 is full of contrast between the thinking and the mindset of the Gentiles with the learning and the teaching in Christ that renews the attitude of minds. Or literally, uh, not, not just the attitude, the spirit of the mind. That's the literal word. So it's not just about changing the contents of our mind by adding or removing knowledge. Changing the mind is not just about learning new things or forgetting old things. It's more about the beliefs. It's more about the thought patterns that influence behaviour rather than theoretical knowledge or, oh, today I learned this, today I know about that. It is about the, the firm convictions that will lead to true change. And so how do you change the attitude or the spirit of our minds? I think the first step lies in the verse that we looked at earlier in verse 24 that tells us we are made in God's image in true righteousness and holiness. Now let me tell you a story about a boy named Greg. Now Greg was an extraordinary kid because he was extremely tall for his age. He was so tall that by the time he was 15 years old, he would sometimes knock his head on the door frames of his classrooms whenever he went to school. Even his tallest classmates only came up to his chest. But because he was so different, he was often teased, right? That happens in school when you're different. And he was called a freak. And so he would keep to himself and lock himself in his room at every opportunity he could whenever he was at home. He kept his distance from people. He never wanted to have anything to do with any activity that involved other people because he thought everyone was right. He was a freak. He was so different. Now, one day at the start of a new school year, a new student sat next to him and towards the end of class, she turned to him with a friendly smile and started talking to him. And she was the most beautiful girl that Greg had ever seen. And she seemed to genuinely be interested in getting to know him. But Greg had a problem. Because he had always withdrawn from human interaction, he found himself awkwardly stuttering his way through something that didn't even resemble a conversation. And as soon as the bell rang, he escaped as quickly as he could. And when Greg reached home, he vowed to himself that something had to change. He had to get out of his shell as his parents kept nagging him about. Or he'd never be able to hold a conversation with anyone, no matter how friendly they were to him. But how? He knew it was his self-consciousness about his height that made him withdraw from everyone else. Then he had a light bulb moment. Where could he be in a social situation where he wouldn't be self-conscious about his height? A basketball court, of course. 
he decided then and there that even though he had never played any sport before and he had spent all his life being locked up in his room alone, he would now be a basketball player. From that day on, Greg threw himself into working out, watching and studying basketball videos, practicing outside on the hoop and ball that his parents gladly got for him. And eventually, he was confident enough in his ability to dribble and shoot the ball. And he decided the next step was to go to the, his neighborhood basketball court and see if he would be able to convince anybody to play with him. And to his surprise, everyone wanted him on their team because of his height. And he began making friends on the court and his social life was transformed. Now, what do you think was the turning point for Greg's social life? Was it his experience of not being able to hold a conversation with a pretty girl and realizing something is wrong? Was it him deciding he had to do something about it? Now, I think those things led him to the true catalyst. Because if he had just decided that something was wrong, or he had just decided he had to do something about it, he could still have been stuck, just beating himself up and wringing his hands about not knowing what to do. But I think the true catalyst was his decision that he would no longer be an awkward loner that locked himself up in his room and kept to himself. His decision that he would now be a basketball player. You see, his identity as a basketball player would be the thing that drove him to do the things that would help him to be a basketball player. The working out, the practicing, even the very scary and uncomfortable step of going to the neighborhood basketball court to interact with other people. His identity, his new identity, led to a change in his mindset to no longer consider his height something that made him a freak, but something that gave him a huge advantage as a basketball player. And the attitude of his mind towards himself and others changed because his identity changed and his behavior changed as a result. You see, the Christian faith is not just about seasoning an ordinary life with a Christian flavor where we add a pinch of worship here and a dash of good works there. It's about exchanging the entire dish. It's about replacing the ordinary life, exchanging it for an extraordinary one, a new identity, a new person. Now let's take a moment to pause, reflect, discuss with one another. What is one thing about your identity or being made in God's image that has helped you to renew the attitude of your mind. One thing about your identity of being made in God's image that helped you to renew the attitude of your mind. And for the kids, what is one way Christians think about things that are different from non-Christians? Okay, uh, for the parents, help them to draw a link to why these Different things are linked to their identity in Christ. Okay, we have two minutes.
Okay, let's move to our last point. The exchange of behavior from an old way of behaving to a new way of behaving. Now that there's an exchange of identity from old self to new self, therefore, remember the importance of the word therefore when it comes to the Bible, Paul talks about exchanging old behavior for new behavior. And so because we throw away our old identity of unbelieving Gentiles with all their ways of thinking, and we put on our new selves of being made in God's image in true righteousness and holiness with a renewed attitude of mind. Therefore, we exchange an old behavior for a new behavior. In the next part of this passage, uh, from verses 25 to 32, Paul could be, he could be addressing some specific things that were you know, happening in the Ephesian context, but there are still general examples to show us what sort of behavior change can come about from identity change uh, when we put off the old self uh, and, and put on the new self. And so let's just quickly go through some of these practical issues of Christian living. Firstly, putting off falsehood and putting on truth speaking. Now, the Bible tells us in many other places, God cannot lie, right? And He never deceives us. And so, in being made in His image, therefore, in reflecting His image, our new selves cannot lie as well, and we need to tell the truth. On top of this, Paul gives a reason for telling the truth in verse 25. He says, for we are all members of one body. I remember the context of this earlier part of Ephesians chapter 4 that we looked at last week. It's about unity in the body. And so having deceit and, and not having the truth among believers brings disunity. And it shows that the body is unhealthy. And so this also means that truth in, in, in the body of Christ is intended to bring about unity. And so when we speak the truth to one another, we need to be careful that it's not done in a way that causes division in the body of Christ. Now next, Paul talks about being angry. He says, in your anger, do not sin. And so the implication here is that we can be angry without sinning. Now, Jesus cleansing the temple is a famous example of you know, being angry without sinning. This is sometimes known as righteous indignation. You know, when you're angry for the sake of good, the sake of righteousness. When you are angry because of the same things that God would be angry about, the things that makes God angry, you also feel angry. Righteous indignation. And so the motive for our anger is very important because anger because of our pride, uh, our pride has been wounded or because we take personal offense as something that someone said or something did to us doesn't fall under this category of righteous indignation. It's not the sort of anger that Jesus ever displayed. And so whenever we get angry for reasons that would not cause God to be angry, that is 
dangerous and slippery slope. And so anger should also never be used as an excuse to sin. We cannot say that just because I'm angry, therefore uh, I, I don't have as much control over the words that I say, I don't have, I, I'm not held liable for my actions that, when I'm angry. No. In our anger, according to the things that also makes God angry, we also cannot sin. Well, we should not sin. Too many verses in Proverbs and other places in the Bible warn against quick or uncontrollable anger, even if it's a good motive. You know, it's like handling radioactive material. It needs to be handled very carefully or it can bring a lot of harm to yourself or to others. And the implication of verse 27 is that anger that is lasting, which often leads to bitterness and unforgiveness, gives the devil a foothold in our lives. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so when we allow anger to fester and to linger over a long period of time, even if it was initially for good purpose, it gives the devil a foothold in our lives. Literally, it gives him a spot. It gives him a place. It gives him a position to gain more ground and have greater influence in our lives. In verse 28, Paul says that stealing is to be replaced with work, not to earn more money so that we can spend it on ourselves, not to earn money to hoard it for a rainy day, but the purpose of working is in order to share with those in need. And so sinful behaviour like stealing is not to be replaced with another sin, like being idle, uh, which is not working when you can, or turning work or, or money into an idol. Perhaps this was one of the verses that inspired John Wesley's sermon on the use of money, where he taught the principles of earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. So we, in, in our new selves, we don't just stop doing what's bad. Part of putting on the new self is replacing it with doing what's good. We put on a redirected ambition. Now, in verse 29, the unwholesome talk, you know, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. This unwholesome talk that Paul mentions is literally rotten or worthless words. Okay, the, 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 the Greek for this unwholesome talk is rotten or worthless words. And so within its context, this verse is not talking about profanity or dirty jokes or things like that. Okay, it, it's not that kind of unwholesome talk. Uh, this verse is a contrasting idea of the second part of verse 29, which, which says, speech that is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And so, so far we've been following the pattern of don't be like this, be like that. Don't be like this, be like that. And so this part of don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth is the opposite of uh, speaking what is helpful for building others up according to their needs and that it might benefit those who listen. Therefore, unwholesome talk here is rotten or worthless talk that tears people down and brings no benefit to those who hear, whether it is 
the person you're tearing down or other people who are overhearing it. Some quick examples of this sort of speech that tears others down or brings no benefit are things like grumbling, complaining, uh, putting people down, insulting, gossiping. Okay, these are all things that we, we say or, or, or uh, talk about that does not build people up or does not bring benefit. And so a simple way to capture this idea is simply, if you have nothing good to say, don't say anything. But on the flip side, if you do have something good to say that will build others up according to their needs and it will benefit them, then by all means, do that. Say it. Build others up with your speech. Benefit them with your speech. Next, Paul tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God and he goes into verse 31 to mention bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. Now, grieving the Holy Spirit of God, the, the Holy Spirit is a person. And so grieving Him is simply whatever brings Him sorrow, whatever makes Him sad. And so when we sin, we bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit who is living in us. But Paul also mentions that the Holy Spirit in us has sealed us for the day of redemption. Now, only Christians have the Holy Spirit in us, and only Christians have the seal of the Spirit marking us for our heavenly inheritance. And so what this means is that Christians can still sin, like I said earlier, we are allowed to struggle, and, and renewing the attitude of our minds is continuing uh, an ongoing journey. But it also means that we are assured of our identity of our new selves, even if we happen to sin after becoming Christians, because God still forgives us. And lastly, in verse 32, Paul says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Again, Paul is saying, exchange the sins of the old self in verse 31 with behavior that is consistent with who God is in verse 32 being kind and compassionate and forgiving, just like God. And so let me invite you to just spend some final moments on this one. Uh, this question, you, you don't have to discuss it. If you don't want to, you can just reflect it on your own. Are there any old mindsets or behaviours that you need to deal with? Okay. Are there any old mindsets or behaviors that you need to deal with. For the kids, is there anything you need to tell God sorry for? Okay, and so for the for parents, no need to fish for details, no need to pronounce judgment on, on the thing they've done wrong. Uh, lead your child in confession and asking God for forgiveness. Okay, we have two minutes.